This is the Josh Hammer Show. So the world is on fire. Inflation is not yet tamed. The economy absolutely stinks. The southern border is wide open. We have no idea, none whatsoever, who is flooding in. But surely we had the U.S. Supreme Court on our side, right? I mean, look at the past two terms. This past term, we had the major affirmative action victory. Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and University of North Carolina. We had the major free speech, religious liberty victory in Colorado, the 303 creative case. The year prior to that, we had the Dobbs abortion case, finally overturning Roe versus Wade. We even had a major gun case, the Bruin case, which finally, finally started to interpret not just the right to keep arms, but the right to bear arms. Well, as Lee Corso of ESPN would say, not so fast, my friend, not so fast. Yet again, we see another indication that the United States Supreme Court is perhaps not quite as solid as many of us would like it to be. A case out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, that is the circuit overseeing Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Naperville versus the state of Illinois. So a three-judge panel on the Seventh Circuit held on November 3rd that the U.S. Constitution's Second Amendment does not secure a constitutional right to a so-called quote-unquote assault weapon, otherwise known as a modern sporting rifle, otherwise known as the modern 21st century equivalent of the very musket that the Minutemen used during the war. It is the most popular owned rifle in America. I certainly own one myself. This is a very disappointing Seventh Circuit decision Judge Frank Easterbrook, one of the most esteemed right of center judges for forever. I mean, for 30, 40 years, Judge Easterbrook taught at my law school when I was there, University of Chicago Law School. I was, I was classmates with his niece, for goodness sake, who's a total liberal loon, by the way, unlike her uncle. He was in the majority here. He, he is known to be actually quite skittish on the gun issue. The U.S. Supreme Court decided to leave this ban in place. So let's back up a little bit here. In 2008, in a case called D.C. versus Heller, for the very first time, the United States Supreme Court actually held that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms means what it says. It was a magisterial majority opinion written by the late, great Justice Anthony Scalia, probably his hallmark signature majority opinion, that essentially said that for weapons that, quote, are in common use at that time, the Second Amendment actually protects that right. Two years later, in 2010, in a case called McDonald versus City of Chicago, the court said that that right applies not just to the District of Columbia, but via the 14th Amendment also to the states. To get out of the legalese for a second, what that meant as of 2010 was that you had a constitutional right enforceable in all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. to keep and bear arms. For the better part of a decade... For over a decade, in fact, the Supreme Court continually swatted down appeals from gun rights advocates who were being spurned and rejected by the lower courts. 
the Ninth Circuit, Fourth Circuit, all sorts of liberal lower courts kept on declining Second Amendment cases where the litigants were trying to establish just what Heller and McDonald said. So, for example, in California, they have bans on quote-unquote high-capacity magazines, magazines of 8, 9, 10 or more. They have all sorts of categorical bans on various kinds of rifles. For over a decade, the court continually declined to hear these cases, leading Justice Clarence Thomas to lament over and over again that that the Supreme Court was treating the Second Amendment as a, quote, second-class right. In 2022, in the Bruin case, the Supreme Court finally decided to take a gun case again and held correctly, held correctly, that where the Second Amendment speaks not merely of, quote, keeping arms, but actually bearing arms, That means that you have to be able to actually carry a firearm. Now, of course, sometimes you can regulate it a little more than others. But the state has to at least allow you a process of being able to carry a firearm. This is one issue, by the way, where the American right is clearly winning on. The number of, quote unquote, constitutional carry states today where you don't need any kind of additional statute, no additional law. You just carry because it's right there in the amendment. It's roughly half the states. My own state of Florida finally, finally enacted this law this past year. Good for them. But here we are now. It's been a year and a half since the Bruin decision. And the court, which the media will tell you is six to three conservative leaning, is not taking appeals to overturn this misguided Seventh Circuit opinion. And you must understand that it really is misguided. The very test from Justice Scalia in the Heller case of whether a type of firearm is constitutional, and he's citing here actually a 1930s era case called Miller, is whether the gun is in common use. The AR-style rifle, I I don't like to call it an AR-15 because it's an anachronistic term. It goes back to the company Armalite. Contrary to what people think, AR does not stand for assault rifle. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. It's actually not an assault rifle because it's a semi-automatic weapon. Assault rifles, like the M16 that the U.S. military has, have a fully automatic option. So all of that is just people who have no idea what they're talking about spewing out anti-gun propaganda. But the AR-style semi-automatic rifle... By far, one of the most popular firearms in the United States of America. To say that that thing is not in common use and therefore constitutionally protected and secured under the Heller-McDonald tests for the Second Amendment is just complete illiteracy. Unfortunately, it shines a bit of a spotlight, the fact that there were not four votes. So the way that this works at the Supreme Court is you have the so-called rule of four. You need four of the nine justices to vote to grant a writ of cert to hear a case. What this means in tangible terms is that this case out of Illinois, city of Naperville versus the state of Illinois, did not get even four votes of the nine. So let's be generous. Let's say that it had three votes. That means that even of the six right of center justices, we're we're being very charitable here to the Chief Justice John Roberts. But let's stipulate for the sake of argument that he's center-right. That means that of the six right-of-center justices, at least three of the six declined to vote to hear this case. I mean, I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you exactly who it was. 
because this, you know, if you follow this stuff closely enough, you have a good sense of this. I can all but guarantee you that Justices Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and Neil Gorsuch agreed to hear this case. If that's true, and I think it probably is, that means that not just John Roberts, but also Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett declined to hear this case. Which is really ironic in Amy Coney Barrett's case, because one of the reasons that the conservative legal movement so vehemently rallied to her side to replace the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the fall of 2020 is that she had this one dissenting opinion in the Seventh Circuit, which was lauded by Second Amendment advocates. It was a staunch Second Amendment ruling basically saying that if you are a nonviolent felon, then even if the state statute says that you cannot possess a firearm, no, you actually can. It's really ironic. By the way, I'm actually not even sure that that dissent of hers was right, but nonetheless, it was one of the reasons for her confirmation. And here it seems that she is not voting for this. Folks, it's just a reminder that even the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a rare right of center institution in America these days, it's a reminder that even they are not unambiguously on our side. As it comes to AR-style rifles, I leave you with this quote, one of my all-time favorite quotes from former Ninth Circuit Judge Alex Kaczynski, writing in a dissent from a denial of en banc rehearing in a 2003 case called Silvira versus Lockyer. Quote, All too many of the other great tragedies of history, Stalin's atrocities, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Holocaust, to name but a few, were perpetrated by armed troops against unarmed populations. If a few hundred Jewish fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto could hold off the Wehrmacht for almost a month with only a handful of weapons, six million Jews armed with rifles could not so easily have been herded into cattle cars. The prospect of tyranny may not grab the headlines the way vivid stories of gun crime routinely do, but few saw the Third Reich coming until it was too late. The Second Amendment is a doomsday provision, one designed for those exceptionally rare circumstances where all other rights have failed. Amen to that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Folks, I have never been more terrified in my entire life of the distinct possibility that World War III could happen in my lifetime. And by in my lifetime, I mean, God forbid, potentially somewhat soon. 
I genuinely fear, this is not embellishing, I genuinely fear that we are on the precipice of a global conflict, the likes of which my generation or my parents' generation have never, ever experienced in their lifetimes. Everywhere you look around the world, it's all up in flames. The United States' southern border is by far the worst it has been in the entire republic's history. These images from Lukeville, Arizona to Del Rio, Texas are astonishing. In South America, with Venezuela and French Guiana, you have a potential territorial incursion. All across the Middle East, not just in Gaza, from the Red Sea and Yemen to Iran itself, to the Indian Ocean, to Russia and Ukraine, almost two years in the making, that war shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. What about China? The elephant of all elephants in the room. Look at what is happening to this day in the East and South China Seas. Every single day, it seems, the People's Liberation Army of Xi Jinping grows ever closer to making that once and for all invasion into Taiwan, forcing the Western world to once and for all decide whether it actually will take a stand right there on that island or let it be gobbled up by the Chinese Communist Party. To say nothing, of course, of the Philippines or any of our other allies in the region that are always, always in the twinkling eye of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. This is by far the most tumultuous I have ever seen the global chessboard. Highly ironic, isn't it? That in an election year, here in 2024, as the President of the United States tries to paint the opposition party, the Republican Party, and its former and perhaps future presidential candidate, Donald Trump, as the chaos agent. How ironic it is that under Joe Biden's watch, the world is currently what it is. The Democrats and Joe Biden, they are trying to scare you. And they're going to do a lot more of it over the next 12 months or so. They're going to carpet bomb the airwaves with January 6th coverage. Wait till you see the CNN and MSNBC media hosts start talking about, oh, the indictments, the criminal counts, the this, the that. The Republicans are the party of the retrograde white supremacists, the fascists, the dictators. Don't fall for it. Open your eyes and look at what is happening around the world right now. Is this really what you want? I, we're not even talking about for the moment being, what is happening here on the domestic front. We talked a lot on this show about the recent congressional testimony of Liz McGill, Claudine Gay, Sally Kornbluth, the three idiots from three of the most prestigious, quote-unquote, institutions in the United States. Inflation still not under, under control. I mean, forget it. We're holding all that aside for the moment there. I am asking you to just sit back, Look at America's standing in the world. Look at your sons and daughters, if you have sons and daughters. Do you want them to grow up in a potentially global conflict of historic or at least generational proportions? 
I assume the answer is no. And try as they might to run far, far, far away from it. That is the incumbent political party's track record. From the botched Afghanistan withdrawal in August 2021 to Putin marching into Ukraine to China being as hegemonic as ever to Venezuela and French Guiana in our own hemisphere, for goodness sake, to everything currently happening in the Middle East. Is that what you want for your children? I assume that the answer to that question, as we said, is no. And if the answer to that question is no, then you need to pause, take a good, hard look in the mirror, and ask yourself, is the media lying to me when they say that things are currently better off than they were four years ago? Is the media lying to me that Bidenomics is working? Is the media lying to me that the Biden-Harris administration is a great guardian of global sanity and has not let the world totally blow up into flames? If you have more than one brain cell sitting between your ears, you know the answer to that question. Yes, the media is lying to you. Yes, the world is on fire. And yes, God willing, something is going to change here over the next 12 months. Because this situation cannot and will not go on forever. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. the media lying to you did y'all catch the catholic priest on christmas day no less talking about how jesus was a quote-unquote palestinian get a load of this crap what i'm so struck by is that the story of christmas is about a palestinian jew now how often do you find those words put together a palestinian jew born into a time when his country was occupied right? They can't find a place for her to even give birth, his mother. They're homeless. They eventually have to flee as refugees into Egypt, no less. I mean, you can't make up the parallels to our current world situation right now. So with all due respect to Father Edward Beck, I don't know which version of the Bible you, sir, are reading, but I would suggest that you reread it or dare I say, actually read it for the first time. Jesus was a Jew born in Judea. By the way, that's literally where the word Jew comes from, is the province of Judea. The term Palestine did not exist 
for roughly 100 years at least after Jesus was crucified. It was all an attempt by Roman Emperor Hadrian to de-Judaize the region and to cleanse it of any Jewish sense whatsoever. It was all a historical whitewashing operation there. So this makes no sense whatsoever. It's actually even worse than that. CNN's Vatican correspondent prior to Father Beck coming on the air tweeted, quote, if Jesus were born today, he would be born in Gaza under rubble. Well, once again, sir, you might call yourself the Vatican correspondent, but which version of the Bible are you reading? Or for that matter, which map are you looking at? Have you consulted a map of the region? Nazareth and Bethlehem are not in Gaza. Bethlehem is east to southeast of Jerusalem. It is in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, whatever you want to call it there. I mean, the the amount of media disinformation when it comes to the war between Israel and Hamas is just absolutely outlandish. Around the same time that Father Beck was going off with his ahistorical garbage, it was the it girl herself, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who decided to parrot some Hamas propaganda, some Al Jazeera propaganda about how the Zionist forces were inundating Bethlehem during the Holy Week of Christ. Well, n- n- no, they weren't. N- no, they weren't, you absolute moron. There, there was a church in northern Samaria, the northern West Bank, that tragically was hit. That is not Bethlehem, by the way. That is a totally different town. And it, it was struck not by the IDF, but by Hezbollah. And then after the IDF saw that this church was struck by Hezbollah, they went in to try to rescue people. And then Hezbollah saw that there were more Jews running in. Then they decided to bomb the whole thing again. So the amount, again, the amount of misinformation and disinformation on this particular conflict is simply astonishing. Simply astonishing. I'm actually heading to Israel later this week. I'm looking forward to this trip. It's going to be a very somber trip. I'm going as part of a small group delegation. We are going to go down to the communities in the Gaza envelope that were hit. Kfar Aza, Kibbutzberry, all all the towns that that were slaughtered. I think we're we're meeting with the families of the hostages. It's going to be a a, a very powerful and and I would imagine emotionally draining experience. But I'm very excited to go and see it for myself because I have every every anticipation in the world that it will only make me want to double down against these morons, the father backs and AOCs of the world. But it's not just Gaza, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago. The entire region is totally up in flames. We've discussed on previous shows how it is now over 100, that is number, it is well over 100 strikes against United States military bases across the region, mostly in Syria and Iraq, since the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th. The Biden administration, because it so greatly fears anything remotely resembling escalation or greater war, has thus far essentially decided not to respond to these strikes. But this past week, three U.S. service members were hit, were hit in a strike by an Iranian Shiite proxy militia based in Iraq called Qatayib Hezbollah, only loosely affiliated with the Lebanese Hezbollah group. There were three U.S. service members hit. One was left in critical condition, potentially traumatic brain injuries. So finally, finally, Joe Biden and his defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, decided to 
hit back. They finally decide to hit back CENTCOM, which is the U.S. Central Command, that is what controls U.S. military in the Middle East. They said that they killed, quote, a number of Kataib Hezbollah militants. They left it purposely vague like that there. Who knows? I mean, if that is your idea of deterrence, I'm not really sure exactly what that means. But it's not just the U.S. military bases in Syria and Iraq. The situation in the Horn of Africa, in the Banal Mandib Strait and the Red Sea, is absolutely atrocious. This is one of the most important choke points for global commerce and oil and natural gas in the world. Roughly 10% of all global trade, if I'm not mistaken, flows right through that choke point that is currently being held hostage by Iran-funded Houthi rebels who essentially control Yemen. Now, again, earlier this week, around the same time that Biden and Lloyd Austin were finally responding to all these assaults on U.S. military bases across the region, a U.S. warship by the name of the USS Laboon intercepted or shot down 16 to 17 different drones and missiles. It was 12 one-way attack drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, two land attack cruise missiles. As Lucas Tomlinson of Fox News reported, this was the first time in history that a United States warship has shot down a ballistic missile in combat, and it happened three times on the same day. This is a massive escalation by the Houthi rebels and their patrons, their sponsors in Iran. This is unprecedented stuff, quite literally, when it comes to U.S. warships intercepting ballistic missiles of this nature. We further have evidence that Iran is escalating. They fired a one-way attack drone into the Indian Ocean. That's not the Middle East. That's pretty far away. They struck a Japanese-owned tanker, Japan being one of America's foremost allies when it comes to Eastern Pacific, Indo-Pacific strategy, Chinese containment, things like that. So the Houthis are attacking Norwegian-flagged vessels in the Red Sea. The Iranian regime itself is striking Japanese-flagged tankers in the Indian Ocean. Again, the world is up in flames. The, the world is just totally up in flames right now. And Joe Biden, who, you know, when he's not on vacation this time of the year, I think he was just in St. Croix. I mean, he's trying to run for, for re-election by essentially doing the whole ostrich strategy. Duck your head in the sand and wish that the problem will go away. Well, it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. And in fact, it's actually even worse than that. Why is it worse than that? Who do you think is coming in across the United States wide open southern border right now? Well, they happen to be from literally all across the world. This is not your Mexican invasion of 15 years ago. It is not your Northern Triangle invasion of nine years ago back when the Crisis back in 2014, 2015, that was mostly the Northern Triangle countries, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Well, now it's actually a lot more sprawling than that. According to data compiled by our friends at the Center for Immigration Studies, they compiled this data via a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. It looks like there are 7,332 so-called special interest aliens who have passed along the U.S.-Mexico border since at least May of 2021, just a few months into the Biden administration. SIAs, or special interest aliens, is the term that the United States government uses 
to refer to people who are either on a terror watch list or are from countries that are so inundated with terrorism, that are so inundated with radical ideologies that they must be presumptively flagged. Many of these countries are, are, are enemy countries. I mean, Iran would be one of them, Lebanon, Yemen with the Houthis, you name it. So it's not just in the world stage, guys. It's very much trying to come across our border. At the same time, the United States' number one geopolitical foe, China and the Chinese Communist Party, they are licking their chops. Xi Jinping has never been happier with how things are going for the United States. We are spread so thin, a useless proxy war in the Russia-Ukraine theater. Who knows what is happening in the Red Sea? Who knows what is happening in the Middle East in general there? The CIA has just announced this past week, there are articles in both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the CIA is trying to double down its human intelligence, its on-the-ground assets, because we apparently just realized, we apparently just realized that we don't have any way of actually getting into Xi Jinping's inner circle and finding out what he's thinking. Probably something you guys should have thought about a while ago. I don't know, maybe around the time that that whole spy balloon was traversing across the entire North American continent? Surely that would have been a good time. Look, who knows how any of this is going down? The conflict in the Middle East is, is not going to go away anytime soon. The Biden administration's shameful attempts at wish casting notwithstanding, the situation in Russia and Ukraine is certainly not going away anytime soon. China, who knows when they're going to invade Taiwan? I am very bearish on this question. I probably think that, that they're going to go in within the next three to five years, if I had to guess. I think it's happening sooner rather than later. If you are an American... You obviously primarily care about domestic issues, as you should. Inflation, immigration, to a large extent, is, is a domestic issue. Supreme Court, this, that, economy. But when the world is this much up in flames, there is no choice but to care. When America has lost this much of its deterrence posture, when people are stomping all over us, when the dictator of Venezuela, for God's sake, is trying to annex adjacent oil and natural gas oil fields, the whole Monroe Doctrine, Latin America, sphere of influence thing notwithstanding, you, my friends, are forced to care about this. Again, for your children, if nothing else. We cannot let World War III happen, but paradoxically, we must not let that happen by stepping up and once and for all, doing something to douse some water on this raging global conflagration. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Josh Hammer Show. It's Ah! Hammer Time. Go! 
The New Tolerance campaign announces 2023 Worst of the Woke Awards. So shout out to the New Tolerance campaign, a new grassroots initiative that exposes phony tolerance coming from the right. Well, there were, were a lot of worst of the woke candidates here from my perspective in 2023. You got to talk still about Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney. We talked about it at length on this show earlier in 2023. When that crap came out around the time of the NCAA Final Four, I mean, I, I remember exactly what it was. I was literally sitting on my couch. I was watching the Final Four and, and my jaw just dropped. I mean, think about it. Have you ever seen someone drink a can of Bud Light who would strike you as sympathetic to the gender ideology charade in general or the transgender phenomenon in particular? Have you ever seen any kind of pink-haired lesbian lunatic drinking a Bud Light? It's not really their demographic, is it? It's literally just not. Bud Light is as American as apple pie, the game of baseball, or skirting on your income tax returns. That was a monumental error by Bud Light, by Anheuser-Busch, by InBev, the ultimate parent company there. To me, that is the single instance that stands out. The New Tolerance campaign also highlights the company of Target. Think back to earlier this past year when Target had the the tuck-friendly children's clothing line. I mean, once again, Target, a, a very American company, not, not, not quite as iconically blue-collar working class as Walmart, obviously, but I, I mean, dude, like, like what in the world are you possibly thinking? I, I mean, who is sitting around, <laughs> who, who is sitting around a product development boardroom, a, a roundtable meeting and saying, hmm, you know what I think is going to sell really well this year? Tuck-friendly children's clothing. I, I mean, just give me an absolute break. How to deepen understanding of DEI issues through virtual reality. Well, this is an, an interesting one. So here's the money quote here, quote, despite the prevalence of DEI programs and companies, many employees feel these initiatives are insufficient. Well, why do you think these DEI initiatives are insufficient? Because they're stupid, because they serve no purpose whatsoever other than to artificially divide us based along racial lines to fester racial grievances to get this whole idea of a coalition of the aggrieved, of fostering this neo-Marxist notion of oppressors versus oppressed classes, dividing us along racial, sexual orientation, ethnic, religion, national origin, immigration status lines, X, Y, Z, and all the above. That is why your stupid programs are insufficient, you morons. Nonetheless, the HRdirector.com is apparently recommending, and they cite quote-unquote research, that one-off DEI training sessions in virtual reality. Virtual reality, they say, can, quote, allow you to experience the realities of marginalized groups. How about this? I have an alternative suggestion. Instead of virtual reality for DEI programs. The alternative suggestion is this. Ditch this profoundly toxic initiative in artificially dividing us between every possible line imaginable and try to unite us. Unite your university. Unite your corporate office. Unite your community. Unite your family. How about a time of remarkable historical dissension we try to actually come together and unite. The purpose of DEI is 
beyond divisive. It is profoundly toxic to a free people. And the idea that virtual reality is what these morons are clinging to as they see these statistics of DEI offices across the country being shuttered down. Most recently, we saw the University of Wisconsin-Madison essentially gutting one-third, I believe it was, of their DEI staffers. University of Texas down Texas doing the same thing. DEI is losing all across the country. And instead of recognizing that the problem is substantive, is with the toxicity of the DEI itself, they're trying to go for virtual reality. Look, as me personally, I will use virtual reality to try and see what it's like in like the Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings universe. I am not going to do virtual reality, for God's sake, to try to cosplay to your woke bullcrap. Texas flies illegal immigrants to Chicago after city bans them by the busload. Well, that's exactly what it sounds like. They're the city of Chicago under the absolutely abysmal, abominable mayoral reign of the new mayor, Brandon Johnson, who hard to believe he's actually even worse. He's even more of a far left nut job than his predecessor, the distinctly fish looking Lori Lightfoot. Brandon Johnson and the city of Chicago tried to ban the illegals coming up from Texas and Greg Abbott by the busload. So they're literally just going to to fly them in there. Bravo. I, I, I mean, two thumbs up to the state of Texas. Greg Abbott, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Greg Abbott speaks fluent Spanish, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken there, which is not uncommon for, for governors of Texas. And the Texas Republican Party in particular has a very mixed history when it comes to the immigration issue. They oftentimes will talk a very tough game, but not actually walk a very tough walk because they're trying to constantly try to win over Hispanic voters. Interestingly, you know, we, we now know from data that that's not how it's done. In fact, in 2020, when Donald Trump was running for reelection, the Republicans made historic gains in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas in counties like Star County, Zapata County, counties that were 85, 90 percent Hispanic. And let me tell you, they were not voting for Trump because of his, quote unquote, soft rhetoric on the immigration issue. So I think that the Texas GOP has probably gleaned some very tangible lessons from Trump's success there in South Texas. That's probably where policies like this are coming from. So huge kudos to Texas for not taking no for an answer from the city of Chicago. This is the right strategy. Put them where it hurts. Make them feel the pain. We already see and have seen Mayor Eric Adams in New York City, who is complaining a lot, who is complaining a lot about his righteously indignant New Yorkers who are totally fed up with this illegal immigration crisis, this all-out invasion. You know, God willing, Brandon Johnson there in Chicago will wake up like Eric Adams in New York City has. I don't think it's going to happen, but good for Greg Abbott for trying. 3.4% of American journalists are Republicans. You did not hear that statistic incredibly. 3.4%. This from a study from Syracuse University's famed Newhouse School of Public Communication based on an online survey with 1,600 U.S. journalists. Look, I would like to say that I'm surprised. I cannot say that I'm surprised. We know from data over the years that the Washington press corps in particular, when it comes to the folks who are there in the White House press room with Karine Jean-Pierre and those types, the, the, the metrics roughly that I've seen in the past are, are roughly that they're 90% Democrat. Now, it's going to change a little bit when a Republican is in charge. When a Republican is in the White House, they're going to hand out White House credentials, press passes to conservative outlets that maybe a Democratic president would not would not actually give access to outlets like Breitbart or whatnot. But three point four percent. 
you know, once upon a time when this survey came out over 50 years ago, 35.5% of the respondents said they were Democrats and 25.7% said that they were Republicans. Journalism was not always this extraordinarily partisan far left endeavor. Once upon a time, journalists who were coming up through the ranks wanted to do things that might seem a little hmm, outmoded or outdated to us now. They were intellectually curious. They wanted to find the facts. This is the whole idea of shoe leather reporting, as they call it. Now, some folks today still do that. Chris Rufo, Aaron Sabarium. We even have some good folks on our side who do this. But man, the entire media profession has been so, so thoroughly co-opted by a singular hegemonic ideology. You see it on CNN. You see it on MSNBC. Let that sink in, guys. 3.4% of American journalists are Republicans. Finally, Antarctic ice sheet mass gains are greater than the losses. There's a new NASA study on the Antarctic ice sheet The increase in snow accumulation there in Antarctica that began 10,000 years ago is at this rate adding enough ice to the continent of Antarctica to outweigh any losses that come from thinning glaciers. Well, you know, take that, Al Gore. Take that, John Kerry. We talked on the show recently about the COP28 UN-sponsored climate change boondoggle over in Dubai, the UAE as a country. Being a, being a country whose economy is disproportionately reliant on oil and natural gas. So, you know, take your hypocrisy and hold that, for a, hold that to the side for a second there. But if this data is accurate, and again, it's coming from NASA, it ain't coming from me. If this data from NASA is accurate there, well, what is the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, going to say about this? Dude, are you going to speak out about this? Are you going to take a break from private jet setting all across the world to hector the plebeians, to lecture the lower people about how they have to turn off their gas stoves. By the way, in the tweet that Kamala Harris and Doug Emhoff put out wishing a Merry Christmas, they showed their kitchen. They showed them cooking in the kitchen. They look like they were having a good time. I mean, you know, if they have, if they have a good marriage, good for them. That's great. But hard to miss the fact that they're cooking on a gas stove, the same gas stove that many liberal elites in blue states across the country are trying to phase out for being potentially so harmful. So the hypocrisy is just simply astounding here. But if stats like this are true, if Antarctica is actually gaining ice, snow, water en masse and is not thinning its glaciers to the extent where global warming is really a big concern there, a lot of people owe us a massive, massive apology. Do not expect that apology because it's not actually about the facts. It is not actually about the science. It is about padding their own bottom lines, their own bank accounts, getting higher speaking fees to speak at conferences just like COP28. They don't care about you. They just care about themselves. Welcome to the World Economic Forum-esque global elite. 